This is a Rooster Teeth production. In 1947, Los Angeles, the mutilated body of Elizabeth Short was found in a vacant lot. Investigators immediately began attempting to solve the grim murder, but all leads came up empty and her killer remains at large to this day. Today, we're going to discuss one of the most famous murder victims in US history, the Black Dahlia. This is Red Web. We're coming back, Fredo, with a classic true crime mystery here. I'm one of your hosts, Trevor Collins, your local mystery enthusiast. With me, as always, uh, as I as I pull him through the mm-hmm. the webs we weave, Alfredo Diaz. And I and yep, and I am the co-host who just ain't having it. All these mysteries and these conspiracies. Um, I'm tickling your brain a little bit. You know, I'm I'm getting in there. So every every now and then, Trevor, you go okay. You might have yeah. heard of this one. Sure. And then while we record, I go, I haven't heard of it. Uh, I've actually heard of this. I don't know anything about it. I just remember this like conspiracy, the title of this conspiracy right. mentioned. I think there might even be like in a, in a film or there might be a film or something. There's This one was very popular. Uh, there's a lot of preconceived notions. I'm sure everybody listening, when they think of the Black Dahlia murder, they think of a lot of different things. And we will kind of address some of those later on um, as we get into the investigation and everything like that. But yeah, I, I remember this one. I remember hearing about it. Uh, certainly has a lot to do with film due to the proximity to Hollywood where it took mm. place. Oh. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely in pop culture beyond just the news for sure. So let's dive in. Let's break down uh, the crime scene and we'll go into the investigation and finalize with some of the top suspects of this unsolved crime. So Elizabeth Short grew up in Medford, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. Her father, Cleo, lost his savings in the 1929 stock market crash. And in 1930, Cleo's car was found abandoned on the Charleston Bridge. Short and her four sisters then moved into a small apartment with her mom, Phoebe, uh, who worked as a bookkeeper. And Short had a lot of respiratory illnesses growing up and ultimately dropped out of high school in her sophomore year. Now, a few years later, in 1942, Her father had sent a letter to Short's mom revealing that he had actually faked his suicide in order to leave and start a new life. And Short decided to move in with him at that point in Vallejo, California. So she's going from the East Coast all the way over to the West. Oh, so fake a death in order to avoid, uh, I guess, the collection agencies. Or yeah, something. Just get out. Something like that. And just get rid of that debt. Couldn't man up and talk to uh, and talk to his family. This guy's just got a bolt. Damn. It's the mid 1900s. And I don't know if I watch too much TV or whatnot, but Mm -hmm. I feel like I feel like that's a trope. That must have been a thing. You know, people just up and leaving, just disappearing. Wait, sorry. When was this again? This is at the very beginning of 1947. Oh, 1947. Yeah, I mean, you know, tech isn't like uh, it is what it is today or even close, right? So I'm assuming you can kind of disappear if you want to. Yeah. Move to a different town, change names, and you could evade people, I guess. Right. The, uh, you know, there's no like internet database that is accessible from everyone. It's a lot of paper files in localized police departments that are accessible via communication by phone. So it's super analog. Yeah. Uh, so I guess it's it's possible. Just get away. Yeah. So she moved out to her father in Vallejo, California. This is years prior to the incident. And soon after moving there, unfortunately, her father actually kicked her out. And then Short lived in various places at that time, you know, staying with friends in various homes. And throughout this time, she worked as a cashier and a waitress. Flash forward to January 9th of 1947. Short returned to Los Angeles after staying with her friend, Robert Red Manley uh, in San Diego, actually. Manley dropped Short off at the Biltmore Hotel at 6.30 p.m. She was going to meet her sister who was visiting from Boston and Short was seen using the telephone in the hotel lobby. The reason I bring this up is because this is the last confirmed sighting of Short while she was still alive. Although she was supposedly seen at the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge about half a mile or so away. Now flash forward about a week, January 15th, 1947, around 10 a.m in a vacant lot on South Norton Avenue in what is now known as the Crenshaw neighborhood, Betty Bersinger, 
uh, was running an errand with her three-year-old daughter. Now, I'm just going to pause for a second, mm -hmm. and I just have to acknowledge how many unfortunate circumstances where, where people are stumbling upon crime scenes with their little ones. Yeah. Hate to see it. Mm. It's just, that's got to be traumatizing. Absolutely. Like, I don't even know what I would do. I don't know. Like, I would, I would like to think I had a pretty solid head on my shoulders growing up. But I mean, actually finding a body. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. That could be that could be a little rough. I could shake it to your core. That must be beyond conceivable, right? Yep. You don't even can't even fathom that. But yeah, so they're driving along and they see well, what they thought was parts of a thrown out mannequin at the time. But then when they drove closer, they, they looked a little closer and they realized oh, no. that this is actually a human body. And this human body had been cut in half. And so, oh. yeah, it's it's pretty gruesome. She ran to the closest house to call the police and then continued to run on her errand. I don't know if she didn't want to get wrapped up in this. I don't know what her errand was, but she's like, listen, police, please come quick. I'm out. I mean, that must be some important errand to just be like, I need to continue going about my day. I mean, to each their own. I I, I say that a lot, but I mean, like... Take that three-year-old and get out. Yeah, you know, maybe she had an obligation that she couldn't get away from, or that was a distraction for her, right? I just saw something gruesome, terrible. Uh, yeah. So did my child, and we're going to have to deal with it but for right now <laughs> in the moment i need a distraction right I, and i don't blame her for not wanting to be roped up into it yeah you're gonna be questioned non-stop and all you really know is that you drove up and saw this i mean but uh authorities arrived on the scene and confirmed that the victim was in fact elizabeth short now i'm going to describe the scene omitting a couple of details that aren't necessary to describing it there's some pretty gruesome details about what's going on here but ultimately and i'll keep it light but just in case listener be warned the body was face up and it was sort of posed in a way. And remember, this body was about uh, a foot apart, the two halves. She was in fact cut in half. Oh. So the killer had posed the arms above her head in a way and the lower half was, like I said, about a foot away. Her eyes were open, uh, which is very spooky, and there was no blood around the body in any way. There were marks on her wrists and ankles indicating that she was most likely bound in some way. And there were other potential signs of torture, though it's not really confirmed if she was or was not tortured. There was a bruising spot on her head, possibly a sign of a concussion or something of that nature and portions of her flesh had been cut off the body. Lacerations were made over her body, and uh, the, the final, perhaps even signature detail to this unfortunate scene is the three-inch slits on either side of her mouth that extend her mouth upwards to her ears. Oh, God. Um, kind of like a Glasgow smile, if you've ever heard of that. It's it's very gruesome. So this person was that did this to her was really sick. Sadistic. Oh God. Yeah, I mean, because we've we've covered murders and conspiracies and whatnot, and it's more just like this person went missing or this person was uh shot or maybe stabbed, but this is like this person uh she was just sick. There's a lot of intent here. There's there's a lot of anger coming out of this. And what's interesting here to to step away from the specific details and more into what the police and officials were learning from the situation here, what, what the, from the scene, it, it appeared that the body was cut using a technique that was actually developed in the 1930s, which was about a decade and a half or so earlier, which was called the hemicorporectomy. So what that is, it's, it's essentially a very rare surgery that's only done as a last resort for patients, which is to, you know, amputate from the waist down, basically leaving the person like I said, as a last resort with only their uh, vital organs in their upper upper half. And so God. that that says a lot in a way um, yeah, because it involves right. the spine. It involves certain cuts in the, in the location of it all. And so it does say a lot about who this person was, whether they were a surgeon, a doctor or someone who was at least in the medical field. Yeah, exactly. Like informed on that. All the cuts were clean and precise and there were no bruising where the cuts were which indicates that the surgical procedure likely happened after death due to that lack of bruising, right? Due to the lack of blood flow. Yeah. And what's what's more is that the body had been drained of blood, which of course hell? visually made it extremely pale, but clearly shows uh, it, 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 another piece before I get to it. The body was also drenched in gasoline to hide fingerprints. So there's a lot of intent here. There's a, there's a lot of like, the, if, if she was passed away by the time she was cut in half, you know, someone's like, she's laying there and they're going at this procedure. Yeah. Like, so this person was pretty sadistic, but on top of that, I mean, like, they were knowledgeable. They were hiding stuff, yeah. Right? Like, 
there are signs to show that this person possibly was in the medical field. Um, but then even on top of that, like the whole gasoline aspect to hide fingerprints, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So this is a, a somewhat intellectual person. Yeah. Right. Because, because even if we're like, okay, it's a doctor. Doctors don't just know how to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Like, no. Like I said, it's a rare, it's a rare surgery. I don't know if you just yeah. whip that one out. Yeah. I don't think there's a, uh, there's a semester while you're trying to get your medical degree about hiding fingerprints. Right. Right. But near the body. Okay. They're, they're starting to look around the body. They're trying to find other clues as to what happened here. And, and what went down near the body, there was a footprint from a high-heeled shoe, some tire tracks, and a cement sack with what appeared to be watery blood marked on it. Uh, whether it was the victim or the uh, murderer themselves is left to be determined. The autopsy reported she was five foot five, uh, weighed about 118 pounds. She had blue eyes, dark brown hair, and decayed bottom teeth. Basically, once again, just reconfirming that this is the identity of Elizabeth Short. Yeah. They determined that she had been dead for around 10 hours, indicating that she must have died the night of the 14th, which was five days after her last confirmed sighting. Taking her fingerprints, the LAPD sent them to the FBI using a sound photo, which was essentially a precursor to a fax machine, which is essentially a precursor to a phone call, which is essentially a precursor. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, hold on, Jesus. I, was I just like, realized Whoa. we say it's a precursor to a fax machine, but let's be real, which is a precursor to an email. Uh, like, let's really modernize this research fact. that was done for that part right there. I was like, what the... Step in the game. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they, they sent that out. The FBI was able to identify Short because she had once been arrested for underage drinking and she had previously applied to work on a military base. So yes, her fingerprints were in the database. We've thrice now confirmed visually with uh, her... Yeah anatomically and by her fingerprints that this is her. Yeah, so without a doubt. Yeah. With all that was done, the cause of death was probably a little bit difficult to determine, but it was assumed that it would have been the cranial hemorrhaging caused by the blows to her head and the cuts around her face. Uh, very quickly, Short's death was blown up in the newspapers. It was, it was incredibly sensationalized. And before Short's family was actually notified of her death, the examiner called her mother Phoebe. Now, this is where it gets like weird, uh, uh -huh. if, if not immoral. Now they told Phoebe that Elizabeth had won a beauty contest and asked for personal information, asked questions that were just too personal. And after that questioning, after answering some questions, they informed Phoebe at that point that her daughter had been murdered. And they gave her the name in this article, the Black Dahlia, supposedly for her hair color and the dark clothes and in reference to the movie, Blue Dahlia. Someone's got to question that newspaper on their uh, their journalistic integrity. Yeah, like my goodness, I get like, I mean, you know, they saw an opportunity. They were like, this was, uh, you know, a murder, which creates headlines. But, you know, they got some information about how this person was murdered. And uh, it's a rare case of a, of a crime scene. And yeah, they were looking to capitalize on that. That's yeah, that's scummy. I'm just going to say it here. There's a lot of dim, dark, and just nasty stuff throughout this whole thing. There, there's no bright side uh, to any true crime mystery, but... Yeah, yeah, brace yourselves. This one's, yeah. Uh, I'm just going to say, this one This one has a lot of uh, just, like, yuck. There's a lot of yuck feelings in this one, but it's, it's just truly fascinating because it's, again, it's just another one of those cases where you think you've, you've got so much, oh. and we all, you know, colloquially know about this mystery, at least by name, and so we're all like, yeah, I mean, that, that mystery... There's, it's titillizingly close, but like, yeah, on paper, it's nowhere to be solved, and it, it's just frustrating. It's one of those wrenching, gut wrenching. But um, but days later, January twenty first, a man called the editor of the Examiner, who was James Richardson, and that man claimed to be Short's killer. He congratulated Richardson on the coverage of the case, claiming he would eventually turn himself in, you know, after letting the police pursue him around. Mm -hmm. Immediately, this starts to remind me of the Zodiac Killer, and this isn't the first thing that kind of tips me in that direction. So, he also told Richardson in that phone call to expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail, to quote him directly. January 24th, about three days later, uh, in nine days after the body was found, the examiner received an envelope, as promised. It contained a letter written with movie magazine clippings that read, quote, 
Los Angeles Examiner, and other Los Angeles papers. Here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow. End quote. And like I said, this was made with letter clippings out of various magazines, very much like your yeah. typical movie uh, note, you know, murder note. This is, oh man, this is a good one. Uh, I see why it's popular. There's just so, so many pieces to it. It feels like sickingly familiar, if that makes sense. Like, it's almost like a lot of the tropes in pop culture that surround true crime in a way like the the fictional stuff it's all there lend like lift from some of what actually happened here which makes it like so growing up and you see these films and you see these things you're like oh you know that's what a movie person does or whatever this was real and that like it grounds that stuff so much for me it's just like Mm -hmm. but in addition to that letter in the envelope it had other uh, several personal things such as her social security card her birth certificate photographs uh, an address book with pages torn out of it and the name mark hansen embossed on the cover which we'll come back to and names written on several pieces of paper actually but it's uncertain what these names were or what they meant now As you can expect, the envelope had been wiped with gasoline, similar to the body, which uh, would hide any fingerprints thereon. Um, Weird. Uh, That's something I didn't know about, but now we got kind of like a a calling sign of this gasoline again. Yeah. Oh, man. And now this is where it really starts to feel a little bit more like the Zodiac case, which we covered not too long ago. 13 similar letters total were received by various local newspapers, taunting LAPD and investigators. Now, they're unsure on if they were all sent or all received or whatever at the same time or if they were trickled in, but ultimately 13 letters of taunting, probing nastiness were sent out, right? Yeah. One was sent to the Herald Express, which read, quote, I will give up in Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me. End quote. Essentially saying, listen. give me some time to kind of just. I think they're saying, give me 10 years in prison and I'll turn myself in. Don't give me the death penalty. Don't give me life in prison or you're just never going to find me. I think that's what they're kind of implying. But how do you think that's going to play out? Because once they have you, they have you, right? Like, unless there's some weird, like, legal document that you can sign and they have to be held to it. Like, Mm -hmm. right? Like, that's it. Absolutely. Astute observation. On that note, uh, and maybe, no, maybe not just exactly on that note, but pin that for like five seconds. Okay. A handwritten letter came to the examiner saying, quote, here it is, turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m., had my fun at police, end quote. And it was signed the Black Dahlia Avenger with a location to meet, essentially saying, hey, I've had my fun, I'm turning myself in. So the police went to the location and they waited and the killer never showed up. Because, as you can expect, yeah, he's probably gonna get put in jail. They're not gonna be like, yeah, sure, here's 10 years, pal. Yeah, they're like, okay, okay, come on in. Not just, just come in here and yeah, you got your 10. Once the lock <laughs> is locked, it ain't coming unlocked. Then it's over, yeah. At 1 p.m., the examiner received another letter written again with magazine clippings that read, quote, have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. End quote. God, this this person has issues. Absolutely. A bit of a temper tantrum. Mm-hmm. You didn't give me what I wanted. Bit of an ego, you know, self-centered. Clearly, clearly not of the right mind. But ultimately, these letters did nothing to help the investigation and ultimately only fueled the sensational nature of this to the newspapers. This is... This is what these articles were fueled by. And of course, while talking and taunting the police, they were messaging newspapers. Of course, they wanted the attention. Exactly. And uh, and that only makes this more sickening. So let's dive into the investigation and a little bit of what was found, you know, and, and so we can try to swing into maybe who might have done this or why. Now, with little of evidence to go off of, police ultimately were indeed struggling to find any leads on a killer. With 750 investigators working on this case and with very few leads, it's a lot. Wow. 750 investigators. And I wonder, like, I mean, obviously, I don't don't expect to to get an answer to this, but I feel like it's one of those things, like, how many did you start off with, right? Mm -hmm. And then from there, the pressure of, like, this being so, you know, blown up in the media Mm -hmm. and, and the constant, like, 
strings being, you know, like little, little treats, little breadcrumbs being left by the killer um, to just keep in the public's eye. How many more people did they tack on? Right. Right. To this whole case and be like, this needs to get solved. This, right. Got to crack this. Because you don't want to look like, listen, you're the LAPD. Yep. You, you cover and protect a lot of people. And if you can't solve this, what does that mean for the regular yeah. citizens of your of your town, of your city? Not a, not a good look. Not a good look. Uh, so the pressure, like you're saying, is very high. Um, 750 investigators investigating this. The LAPD offered a reward for any information. And as you can expect, God, s around 60 people called in confessing to say that they had killed the Black Dahlia. I don't know what their motives are. I don't, you know, I don't know if it's just other unwell people looking for attention, but 60 people are calling out saying that they did it. Yeah, I can't believe that's a, I don't know. I can't believe that's a thing. I, I don't, that's still so weird to me. I hope there's like a documentary or something like that about just the mind of that, right? Or just like, mm -hmm. I did it. Like, I want to take all the punishment for that. I guess it's just, I guess for the fame, right? Like at that point, just someone probably isn't happy with their life. So they're like, I have a shit life anyways. And, and might as well be famous yeah. and you know, be in maybe. jail? Like, I don't, I don't know. I can't even begin to think. They're thinking maybe, you know, just end it. Or maybe, you know, life in jail looks a little cozier than what I got going on. Like, you, you just don't know. You don't know where people come from or what they no, have to deal with. Right? And Different walks of life. But just, exactly. it's so fascinating to be like, that many people were like, yo, it's me. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure they investigated all 60 of those people. And even more people came forward believing that perhaps their relatives might be the killer. But in total, the LAPD investigated more than 200 suspects. Police interviewed many men from that address book that the examiner had received, including Hansen, who was the one who had his name embossed on it. He was the owner of that phone book. Uh, and a lot of men interviewed had supposedly briefly dated Elizabeth Short. So they're kind of trying to hone in here and try to find people that knew her and we're close to her. Yeah. But because of the skill required to cut the body in half, LAPD did background checks on USC medical school students to see if any of them had any relations with her or if they knew her or were in the area. Ultimately, Manley was the last person to see Short alive and was initially considered as a suspect. However, Manley said it wasn't him and voluntarily took two polygraph tests confirming that he was telling the truth. Years later, he had been hospitalized for mental illness. He was given truth serum while in the hospital, which is sodium pentothal, essentially like a euphoria drug. Yeah, make you more susceptible to just answering questions. And mm -hmm. thinking, yeah. And ultimately, this was confirmed again that he was telling the truth. So Manly, again, on paper, this is the last person to see her, top suspect, cleared. Polygraph tests, you know, they have their, their statistics. They're not super reliable, but confession under a truth serum, you know, you might question the ethics of it. I also don't know if you're always going to tell the truth, but it's a lot to go through. And so the police wrote Manly off. Yeah, it's a gray area. You know, it gets muddy either which way it goes. If mm -hmm. if he's like, I did it, then there's just like, oh, you know, they're kind of under the influence of something. Like, can you really trust yes. that statement? It's a good point. Even if they say, no, I didn't. Then, then again, it's just like, well, can you really trust that? It's just either way you go, it's it's muddy. It's really muddy. Right. Especially, especially when you have 200 other suspects, 60 of which or so saying, I, yes, vehemently did this. You know, the mud, the waters are very muddy. So now, on the same day that the examiner had received the belongings that we went over before, the police found a handbag and suede shoes on top of a trash can around two miles from where Short's body was discovered. Now, the reason why they think this is part of the case is because these were also drenched in gasoline. In fact, Manley, the one we were just discussing, was able to identify this very bag and shoes as Elizabeth Short's. Now, at the end of all of this, despite the numerous suspects and the, the various leads that the investigators pursued, no one was ever ultimately charged with Short's murder. And as I mentioned before, they are still at large if they are still alive. But yeah, that's pretty much where the investigation falls off. Damn. I mean, I can't imagine trying to figure out who committed crimes back in the day, right? The lack of technology and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, it's just hard to track people, right? It's all, it's all tangible, like 
trails of like paper and whatnot that you could just get off the grid easily if you wanted to. Right. Um, compared to nowadays. You also got to think like the other side, you know, like if you're wrapped up in this, you know, an unfortunate circumstance. I mean, we've played Among Us together. We know if you're just in the area and all you have to go off of is he said, she said, or all you have to go off of is maybe a police officer reading your body language. Like, imagine, just imagine that environment. Right, right exactly. How is it? Oh, I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of techniques and whatnot, but just like, man, like, can you imagine a police officer grilling you? Right. And you didn't do it, but you don't know what the signs are because, you know, just a civilian and, and you're sitting there and you're sweating, you're yeah, nervous. and You're maybe, already nervous. Right, you're giving out certain signs like, I'm sure they're trained, right? I'm sure. But like to have to, to figure out what is like this person just being nervous about the situation versus like this person did it type thing. Right. And how much like error is introduced by any particular investigator through that process. Right. Um, I mean, like DNA is like 99.999%, right? There's, there's twins. There's other like you know, degradation of DNA and stuff. But like, but the DNA are like, that's like solid. That's like maybe like the most yes and no piece of evidence you can get. Whereas how someone's sweating, I don't know. Like, ew. on one hand, I would hate to be wrapped up in this. On the other hand, I would not want to be a police officer needing to investigate something like this. I can't imagine how frustrating it would have been trying to chase down someone taunting you like this. Uh, spoiler alert for the little things, because this movie just came out. Give you a second to... Skip like 30 seconds. Shut your eyes. Shut your eyes <laughs> on a podcast. <laughs> All right, hit me with it. So, they, you know, they had a, a victim that got away and essentially they were just like okay they're trying to get that victim to id that person but you know the detective was like hey don't let her out of your sight to another detective mm -hmm. she went to the bathroom it's a detective right to movie lets her out of her sight for a second she comes out the victim sees the guy walking out right the suspected killer walking out with handcuffs and stuff like that and then it's all tarnished at that point right right because her vision right even though blurry it's now swayed towards like it's probably that guy right you, right you've seen him seen him even in handcuffs so it's just like you can't really do a lineup at that point right they're mm -hmm. just like we can't do a lineup it's washed like she's already seen him right and seen him in cuffs like it's it's all botched yeah like you know, cognitive biases, man. Okay, now open your eyes. <laughs> okay, before we get into, you know, the main suspects, I do want to address several of the rumors that I had mentioned at the top of the show. Um, things, preconceived notions, etc., that are all looped into this case that, again, just don't help. They just go to muddy the waters, for better or worse, right? The newspapers are elevating this case, and they're, they're talking about it, and they're, you know, in a way that can help, that can bring awareness to the case, people can be more on the lookout, etc., but it can also yeah. destroy a case when they really latch onto or make up facts or details. It can really change the game. Here we are again in the gap in the mystery where I get to tell you a little bit about some housekeeping notes of Red Web, as well as our lovely sponsors. As always, we've got store.roosterteeth.com if you want to support the show directly and get that merch. Otherwise, thank you all, as always, for your ongoing sharing of the show. Word of mouth is the best way to spread a podcast. So if you've got friends who love mysteries, send them our way. And it's also a joy to hear how you guys are always listening to this show with your significant other or your best friends and you're theorizing yourself. Uh, I just love how into it you guys get. That's how into it I am. And so when you guys hit us up with your own theories, it's always a fantastic time. So let us know what you think of this one today. But in the meantime, I got some fantastic sponsors for you, such as Candid. Thanks to Candid for sponsoring this podcast. Unhappy with your smile? You don't have to be. Thousands of people have used Candid, the clear, comfortable, removable, and practically invisible aligners to help straighten your teeth. And now they love their smile. Just like Justin M. from Atlanta, Georgia, who said, you can't stop me from smiling now. After his experience with Candid, your treatment is prescribed and closely monitored remotely by a licensed orthodontist who's an expert in tooth movement. You'll have the same quality of care you'd get from an in-office orthodontist from the comfort and convenience of your very own home. 
Personally, I'm super impressed with how easy Candid is to use, and uh, the fact that you can use this at the comfort of your own home is is a super plus, uh, because I hate going out to the doctors, waiting in the office, sometimes they're late, sometimes you're early, it's just, it's a big hassle. Uh, but they have a quiz on their website that you can check out to see if this is something that you qualify for, if this is something that you're interested in, and it just shows how easy this entire process is. So, become your best you. If you're interested, start straightening your teeth today, because right now, you can save $75 on Candid's starter kit. Go to candidco.com slash redweb and use code redweb. That's candidco.com slash redweb. The code redweb. Take advantage of this limited time offer to save $75 on your starter kit. Candidco.com slash redweb and use that code redweb. Let them know we sent you and straighten your teeth. Get on it, pal. This episode is also brought to you by Raycon. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm always looking at a screen, now more than ever. And whether you're an avid news watcher or in serious need of a distraction, unplugging yourself is easier said than done. One of my favorite ways to rest my eyes and still get the content I'm itching for is by putting on my Raycon wireless earbuds and listening to something great. Raycons are built to perform anywhere, anytime, with water and sweat-resistant construction and Bluetooth that pairs quickly and seamlessly. And with enough battery life to last six hours of playtime, you can unplug for a while. Personally, I use Raycons whether I'm in the gym or out on a run. They stay in nice and snug, and they're super low profile, unlike a couple of other brands of wireless headphones that kind of stick out or look a little weird or might get bumped and fall out. They fit in nice and snug into your ear. They're low profile, but look cool at the same time. And uh, and yeah, they won't fall out while you're running. They won't get lost between the seats and the airplanes uh, when you start traveling again. Trust me, I've lost some things in between those seats and you'll never get it back. Right now, Raycon is offering 15% off all of their products for our listeners, for those of you listening to Red Web. And here's what you got to do. Okay, if you want to buy them, go to buyraycon.com slash redweb. And that's it. You'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. So feel free to grab a pair and perhaps a spare. You want to go running with your significant other? I suggest you do it with the Raycons. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash redweb buyraycon.com slash redweb. Thank you, sponsors. And with that said, why don't we head ourselves right back into the mystery? So the first one uh, was a rumor that became common knowledge, or so to speak, was that she was like an aspiring movie star. She had the good looks. Uh, she lived close to Hollywood. You know, this started to lead to the rumors that she was an aspiring actress, and that's why that she was living in Los Angeles. Not really because of her father, but again, because of this uh, this aspiration she had. Now, while Friends of Short said she was very interested in movies, it is still unknown if this was a career goal of hers. She has no acting credits. And because of this, ultimately, the concept of a beautiful future movie star being murdered is what brought a lot of attention to the case. But. It isn't necessarily important to the case itself. It is what blew it up. It doesn't necessarily muddy the waters, but this is kind of one of the rumors that really kicked it up. The second major rumor was her cause of death. So Short's whereabouts between the time that she was dropped off at the Biltmore and the time that she was found are completely unknown. Like I said, we don't really have any witnesses uh, between those in that five days or so that she was missing, and newspapers just started to fill in the gaps with stories that she was tortured, covered in cigarette burns, and forced to do awful things. Now, there's already very limited evidence that she might have been tortured. It isn't limited in the sense that it's not there, it's just they weren't certain if she was actually tortured or not. They think some of these lacerations indicate that maybe, but she certainly didn't have any cigarette burns, and there's certainly no evidence of her being forced to do awful things, so now they're already creating a narrative. And really, like, sickly yeah. trying to make a, a detailed story about someone's unfortunate demise. And because of this, I don't know if it actually caused people to, to think of these things or if she actually was seen, but many people claim to have seen her in various places. All of those ultimately ended up being false when looked at by detectives. But again, now you're starting to kind of add fog yeah. to the air. You just, you can't yeah, you get are. a clear line of sight. Muddy waters, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's one of those things where like... Getting the public involved has got to be worse, right? In a way? I don't know. I'm sure it does more damage than good. But one last note on the cause of death. You know, the LAPD obviously could have stepped in and said, hold on, everybody, no. And they didn't. 
They allowed these stories to circulate because they didn't want the actual cause of death, which was her cerebral hemorrhaging, uh, to be known by the public. Now that sounds odd, but also why would the public need to know that specific? See, what, what I think is re the real reason why they're doing this is because if someone comes forward and they have information that implies this unknown fact, then they actually have a lead in a, in a world where they have very limited leads, right? Yeah. And so they're looking for, in the noise, they're looking for someone who says something close enough to what actually happened so they can dive in on that. Right. It's like the little, like, nooks and crannies, right? Or it's just like, okay, most of this thing is public information. But I'm sure they even use that for a lot of the the people that are coming forward trying to claim that they were the killer. Right. There's certain details that they just don't know because it's not public. So then at that point, it's just like, well, this person obviously didn't do it because they don't have those little details that the killer would know. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like there's, you know, I don't want to get too into other cases, but it's interesting when you think of like the, the documentary of making a murderer and you watch that investigation, you watch that interrogation. However, you, your opinion falls on this matter. Obviously, documentaries can be edited or whatever, but there's a difference between how these two cases were handled. One was handled in a way that went to court because they were saying the police basically pressured this person to come forward with the information. They they lightly implied the information so that way this individual would spit it back to them and they would have a confession. Here, it seems to be totally different where they're scooping through a bunch of different people actually trying to find the person that did it rather than the first person to come forward because they're not just yeah. trying to button it up and call it in, like over. We yeah, got it. I mean, that's the thing too, right? Where it's like, you have to be sure mm -hmm. because you pin someone and then all of a sudden, you know, another murder comes up again and it's, this, you know, you could, you could, it's like, hey, this is the same person. Mm -hmm. Then you're, you know, <laughs> the police department is really screwed. Well, that happened. That happened in that doc. <laughs> that uh, that's that's uh, anyway, that may might be another thing that we dive into or not. I don't know. There's a lot on that case. And oh, man, because it. <sighs> The thing too is like that ruins someone's life, right? Like, yeah. like everyone's gonna several. I mean, waterfall effect of people's lives, you know? Yeah, no, completely. People sitting there just like, oh, I mean, you know, they said it wasn't you, but in the back of my head, was it? Right? Was it really? Like, oh my goodness, could you imagine? No, God no. Ugh. Oh man. Well, the last rumor that kind of came out. And this one feels like the newspaper is just doing their their thing, right? Making things sensationalized, trying to provide a vivid story when really there was no need. But this regards her sexual history. So in the first stories on Elizabeth Short, writers spread rumors about her sexual history. One newspaper described the fitted black suit that she was wearing at the Biltmore as, quote, a tight skirt and a sheer blouse, calling her an adventuress. So we're already starting to see the sexism of the times rear its ugly head, almost low key implying that that she's at fault or something. Like, why why is she the bad guy now? Right, exactly. This like, person is no longer with us and is and died a gruesome death. Like, what are you? Oh God, just grimy. Yeah, and and L.A. Times started focusing on this as like a sex focused. Uh, murder, calling it a sex fiend slaying. Many people started claiming that she was a sex worker, but there, there was no evidence of any of this. It was even rumored that Short was pregnant, but that was confirmed that inaccurate, right? By the autopsy, mm -hmm. it showed that she had never been pregnant. So these strange rumors ultimately hindered the investigation as authorities pursued them all. You know, we have 750 people being paid to, to find this person's killer. Many of them are getting caught up in these unnecessary rumors, almost libel at some points, where it's just like, why are we diving down this path? Yep. You know, I, I get needing to know a little bit about the woman to know maybe, you know, the machinations of what she's up to, maybe where she's going. But like right. building up a story like this, just all it did was just add clouds to the scene. And it's just, it's just so unnecessary. Yeah, and it's, it's just everyone's trying to get, you know, uh, they're trying to sell papers trying to sell their papers at the expense of potentially solving a crime, which come on people. Like, I don't know. I think this is these, these rumors here have done way more damage than help. I think what you were saying about it being so public probably ultimately did way more harm than good and probably played a large hand in kind of obscuring whoever it was that was the culprit of this act. It's just a mess. It's, it's, it's a mess. A complete mess. But with that said, let's dive into the three major suspects how they're related, uh, you know, what the evidence is against them and everything. And there's some compelling information here uh, regarding each of them. But let's start with suspect number one, 
Leslie Dillon was a bellhop living in Florida when he became a suspect on October of 1948. He was also an aspiring writer and trained as a mortician's assistant. Oh. Yeah, right? He wrote to the LAPD psychologist, Dr. J. Paul DeRiver, uh, because he was interested in studying and writing on sadistic behavior and sexual violence. He then told DeRiver that he had heard about the case from a true crime show and asked for theories. Interesting that true crime was a show all the way back then even. Yeah. Some things never change. While writing back and forth, Dylan said he believed his friend, Jeff Connors, was the killer because he claimed Short threatened to reveal an affair that was not considered proper by the average person. So apparently this Jeff friend of his was in some sort of affair and that Short was threatening to reveal it. And that was his MO. That was his motive. Sound like good friends. Sounds like close friends to be <laughs> saying that kind of thing. DeRiver started to believe that this Jeff Connors person was only a figment of Dylan's imagination and that the killer might actually be Dylan himself. <gasps> DeRiver suggested that they meet in person and proceeded to interrogate Dylan. And Dylan knew about blood being drained from the body, which was also information that wasn't publicly available at the time. But here's the thing, is that mm -hmm. like information that he knows because of, you know, his line of work? Well, that's true. He accurately described the process, which is knowledge that he would have because he was a mortician in training, but how would he have known that the blood was drained from the body? Because that mm. was information that the police withheld. True, true. Like, how would he have known that that happened in this particular murder? Because that's not something that's like, that's not common. Unless he's assuming because maybe he's thinking like, you know, the mortician did it after the fact and it just happened to coincide with actually the murderer did it prior to the autopsy. I'm not sure. But months later, on January 10th of 1949, the next time that the two met, actually, uh, Dylan was held against his will and the LAPD tried to get him to confess to the crime. The next day, police found out that Jeff Connors was actually a real person, but his name wasn't Jeff Connors. It was Artie Lane. Lane had lived in Los Angeles and worked at Columbia Studios, where Elizabeth Short often visited. Detectives also found that Dylan had likely been in the area when Short was missing, but they couldn't be certain. So now we have this fake person, this friend of his that actually is real, but has a different name and who was working somewhere in close proximity to where she would visit often. They were in the area when she went missing. I don't know. But ultimately, Dylan sued the LAPD for the treatment that he had received, and ultimately, that suit was dropped when it was later found that he was wanted for robbery in Santa Monica. What the? Uh, what? This person is a mess. It's all over the place. A damn mess. Yeah. An LA Times reporter claimed that Dylan was probably compensated under the table for that suit. Uh. Yada, yada. But this led to a grand jury investigation into the LAPD and how they handled the Black Dahlia case. So for better or worse, I guess this at least shined a light on the LAPD and in, in ensuring that their investigations were thorough and proper. Uh, Procedures and everything. This is just, it, it feels like, I don't know. It makes my head spin to, this one. I don't know how to describe it, but this is just scattered all over the place. Every right. which way, right? Like, no one's doing anything right, it seems. There's no evidence on this one, and that's what makes it so frustrating. Yeah, okay, you were in LA, but you live in Florida, but your friend is here, but he's fake, but he's real, but his name is different, and he was also working here. <laughs> yes. I'm like, come on. Exactly. Anybody been to LA is now a suspect. I don't know. I don't know how to read this one. And to really button it up with one more confusing piece of, of theory. Some people theorize that Dylan was able to avoid arrest uh, because he was actually related to the governor of Oklahoma. So let that one spin your head for a little bit. Oh, now we're... Oh. But, you, but you do need to center on some of the facts here, or at least some of the anecdotes, at least, right? What really makes this titillizing in a way is he came forward. He was almost morbidly curious with this topic. He seemed to know a little bit more than he should have. And whether that was due to his job or coincidence or whatever, he had a friend that he gave reason to somebody else to believe that that friend wasn't real. And then it turns up that friend is real with a fake name working at a place that Elizabeth Short commonly visited. So on the word, it is certainly interesting. So sketchy. So sketchy. Still very sketchy. But there's just nothing concrete. Yeah. Like nothing to like, you can't pin him on. Right? Like, right. 
you can't go all right that's it get them in the i don't know i was gonna say paddy wagon but it's, <laughs> it's not we're not we're not that far back strap them to the horse <laughs> ride them into town uh yeah that won't stick unfortunately no well that leads us to suspect or suspects number two Mark Hansen and Dr. O'Reilly. Oh. So Mark Hansen was the owner of the address book that we had mentioned earlier, the same book that had his name embossed on it that was sent to the examiner along with various other belongings. He owned nightclubs and theaters, and he knew Short while he was living in Los Angeles, actually allowing her to live in his home on multiple occasions between May and October of 1946. Ann Toth, Hansen's girlfriend at the time, shared a room with Short in a house close to the club that Hansen owned. LAPD records show that he tried to date Short, oh. but ultimately she turned him down. So now, you know, we're getting closer. We feel like we're sinking our teeth into something here. Might be a little bit of motive there. It's gonna get confusing, don't worry. Oh God. <laughs> January 8th of 1947. Short called Hansen from San Diego, making him one of the last people that she spoke to. Mm hmm. When LAPD questioned him about the call, Hansen made multiple contradictory statements. Now this is exactly where the conversation goes, what we were talking about earlier. Maybe this guy's nervous because he did it and he's contradicting himself. Maybe he's nervous and he's just trying to, to give the story, but he's so nervous that he's fumbling over himself. It's just, I don't know, I wasn't there. Yeah, how do you, oh God, that's... Contradictory statements, man. That's a tough job. I don't, I'm not jealous of whoever had to do that mm. at all. Nope, still not, never. But Hansen claims he gave Short the address book to use and keep for herself. And that is how she came into possession of that. That there's nothing nefarious behind it. Ultimately, Hansen had connections to three other suspects, okay? Remember, there were a lot of suspects. Now, these three suspects in particular were Drs. M. M. Schwartz, Dr. Arthur McGinnis Fought, and Dr. Patrick O'Reilly. Now, let me know if you have any questions because it's a little bit of a web. But Dr. Fought was Elizabeth Short's gynecologist. <sighs> Dr. Schwartz had one of the same nurses as Dr. Fott, and Hansen had driven Short to see Dr. Schwartz. Dr. O'Reilly went to Hansen's nightclubs frequently and knew Short through Hansen. He was a medical doctor, which kind of goes to the crime scene, right? Her body being cut in half surgically. He was once married to an LAPD officer's daughter, and he had a history a history of violent sexual crimes and almost killed his secretary. What? All right. I mean, the, the whole like first theory, that's out the window for me. Like, really? There's just so many things here. There's little nuggets in each of these that it's like, I can't throw them all out, but obviously it can't be like a team of these people, probably. I'm just like waiting for the other foot to drop to just be like, well, he had an alibi. He was somewhere else. Right. Well, it's theorized. Now, I know that that was a bit of a social networking nightmare, but those are the facts that we have. Those are the at least the pieces of the theory that we have. Now, it's theorized that Dr. O'Reilly and Hansen may have committed the crime together. And there are rumors of Hansen being involved with organized crime, though he had no criminal record. Ultimately, when researching this, Jillian and Christian couldn't find any real information other than these theories. So that's ultimately all we have to go on for these two suspects. Again, nothing tangible, but something oddly eerie, right? Something that feels oh, so fishy. It's so sketch. There's history of like things that would line up. Oh, mm -hmm. oh I want to nail these two. Yeah. Well, that enters suspect number three that we're going to talk about today, and that's George Hodel. George Hodel was a well-connected bachelor and doctor. So now we have another doctor on the table. He owned a venereal disease clinic and was not a surgeon, but he had studied to become one. So, you know, maybe there's some information in his brain kicking around on how to do a hemocorporectomy. Now, this, oh man, okay. This particular suspect, I'm playing my hand right now. This is the foot that's gonna drop for me. Short and Hodel, in addition to that information, supposedly dated, and they were seen together at the Biltmore. So you've got the history of potential surgeon, the doctor. They were seen together where she was last seen alive. They oh. supposedly dated, so there's proximity, right? Yeah. The people that you most suspect are the ones that are closest. Right. And on December of 1949, George's daughter, 14-year-old daughter, uh, Tamar, accused him of sexual abuse. So now we have another kind of flag. Uh, history, bad history. Exactly. Uh, three witnesses said they had seen this, but he was acquitted. 
Not sure that how that happened. Uh, but this led LAPD to consider him as a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. I mean, rightfully so, in my opinion, from what I'm at least hearing here. Oh, yeah. Now, in 1950, LAPD placed listening devices in his home and recorded a few pieces of, woo, very questionable information. The first of which, I'm just gonna push this right to the top. They recorded a woman screaming. Again, these are hidden listening devices in his home. What? They heard a woman screaming. Now this woman, her voice, was no one that had been heard in any recordings up until this point. So it isn't like his daughter, a familiar face, a friend, a wife, anything like that. This is someone else who hadn't been in this home up until this point. I, I mean, like what kind of screams are we talking about? You know what I mean? Maybe someone's practicing for a play. Maybe it's a, a TV or something like the radio. I'll give you I'll give you the next couple recordings and I'll let you you tell me if you think it's for a play. <laughs> oh, oh. So the second kind of recording piece, and I don't know, you know, I'm gonna read this verbatim because it's kind of a quote, and I don't know if uh, this is a quote that kind of acknowledges that there was some muffling in there, because some of the sentences feel like they jump around, but I'm just gonna read it as, as it's been reported. So quote, now this is him saying this, realize there was nothing I could do. Put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket. Get a taxi. Expired 12.59. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out killed her end quote so like i said i don't know if there's like language in there that's muffled and hidden but like those are the decipherable words i'll be honest with you that's a weird play i don't know what kind of i don't know what kind of play that is <laughs> like maybe maybe uh, maybe bow out of that one the play analogy has got to go out the window after this one okay third recording quote supposing i did kill the black dahlia they couldn't prove it now they can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead they thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out, killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. So obviously there's some overlap with the second recording, but like, I'm just I'm just grabbing my temple right now. I I, <laughs> I don't know. Bust this man's door down. Oh my god. Bust in there. In in 1940s, this is listen, this is your smoking gun. This is the evidence you need. Get this man. Why what? Why didn't they get this man? Well, we'll get in there. Oh, God. So George Hodel was a suspect in the murder of his secretary, Ruth Spaulding. Now, this is a different murder, different case. Just gonna, it's a little bit of an aside for right now, happened a few years prior, after she died from an overdose in 1945. George was the last person to see his secretary alive and burnt some of her papers before police arrived to investigate. I'll let you go ahead and let that click in your mind for just a second. But that case was dropped due to the lack of evidence. Mm. But it was later discovered that Spaulding was going to come forward with information on him misdiagnosing patients and having them do treatments that they didn't need. Okay, so there is motive here. They threw out the case because there was no information, but they found out later that this secretary was going to out this man as diagnosing people with, with patients with things and treatments that they didn't need. So there's like huge motive for this man to do some dirtiness. Lock this person up regardless. Lock him up. I don't care up. what the last case said. There's no evidence. This came out after the case. Put this man away. <laughs> oh man. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. Yeah, to get this man out. It's theorized also that the, that Short might have been one of these patients. One of these patients that was being diagnosed with something that was not actually there. Now, George was friends with uh, and very inspired by artist Man Ray. And it is theorized that the way her body was posed and cut was influenced by Ray's art. Now, this is just getting sickly. January 9th, 1947. 50-pound concrete bags were delivered to George's home six days before the body was found. Now, if you remember the crime scene, similar bags were found near the body with, remember, it was described as watery blood on the bag. This man, this is the man, right? Uh, I want to say this is the man, but I've been saying that about the other... Oh. All right, well, let's keep diving in. There's a, there's a little bit more on this gentleman here if you want to call him that. In 1950, George moved to the Philippines where another woman named Lucila Lalu was found cut in half in 1967. Oh, come on. Almost 20 years later. Okay, so, you know, the Philippines, it's a bigger country. I'm, I don't know if they were in the same area or what, but come on. 
Like, come on. Oh, yeah. Well, as you as you know, with some of the suspects of the Zodiac case, because there's a lot of similarities here, after his death in 1999, his son, Steve Hodel, found photos of the Black Dahlia while going through his stuff. So regardless of what we conclude here or what ends up coming out in the future, if he is convicted in some way, post-mortem, he is now dead and gone. There is no punishment beyond, uh, you know, no no yeah. mortal punishment for this sin. Was able to live his life. Yeah, he lived his life. But yeah, his son found photos of Black Dahlia while going through his stuff. And uh, Steve was actually a former LAPD homicide detective. So there's there's a lot of, like, serendipity in this story. But Steve then did his own investigation after retiring uh, that led him to believe that his father was indeed the killer for Elizabeth Short. Steve claims that George lived very close to the crime scene, and in 2013, Hodel had the soil at his childhood home, that very home, tested for human remains. That test, I don't know what that test is, or if it's a real one or not, I don't know. But that test came back positive. But it's unknown from who or from when, uh, so it's just positive for human remains, that's it. Right. Now, it is worth saying, and this might kind of flow the conversation back the other way, many were skeptical of Steve's story because of a few things. It could have been a personal vendetta, uh, having been an L.A. police officer, I, I don't know. Uh, there's no confirmed evidence. Uh, even the even the test here of the human remains is, is just kind of, could be anything from any time. Right. Uh, he also believed his father might have been the Zodiac, and he had said as such. So that kind of offers a little bit of like, okay, well, what are you trying to claim here? You can't cry wolf several times on one guy. Yep. Uh, and Stephen Kay the head deputy DA at the time of Steve's story took Steve's words as fact and proclaimed the case closed. Detective Brian Carr, the LAPD officer in charge of the Black Dahlia case, decried Steve's theory and claimed that he would be laughed out of the office if he presented this case or a case as weak as his to a prosecutor. And so now you have two different, you know, the the guy who was in charge back in the day saying this is this is a laughing stock. And then you have the head deputy DA at the time of Steve's story saying, yep, all right, case closed, that's it. Right, done and done. Ah, it's conflicting. Yeah. Well, ultimately, the LAPD eliminated George as a suspect, but it is theorized this was due to his connections, his money, and the LAPD being corrupt at this time. Ultimately, all physical evidence, whether it existed or not, is missing from this suspect. And that's all we got. This is so sloppy. It's so sloppy from all angles. It's slop central. Everybody, even even the uh, even the police department that's doing the investigation, all of it is a mess. Mm-hmm. It is a complete mess. This is, like we do a lot of you know episodes where we don't you know just like you know, and that's kind of well all we got. But with this, it's just like I'm. I expected it. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Like. Of course, this is all we got. Of course, like we didn't catch the person or everything was just it was a it was a spectacle. It was out there. It was his big show. And mm. I don't know, man, even in front of the cameras and behind the cameras, it was just sloppy. Right. And one has to think, too, like when the stories died down in the newspaper, does that kind of low key make people start to not care? And not like, ah, whatever. I've I've heard that enough. On to the next scandal or on to the next headline. Like, does that demotivate people? And what does that do to the case? What does that do to the victim and the victim's family and and the killer at large that could go on to do other things? Perhaps like Steve Hodel might have done here in the Philippines. I I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, it's dark. And what I really hate about this case is that it reminds me so much of again the Zodiac. In, in the worst ways. So many similarities. Right, yeah. So many anecdotal pieces of evidence that come together to tell a story that is, to me, as a human hearing from another human, uh, as, as, as someone who has trust in others, that I go, that's it, man. This is the guy. There's too much that clicks with this guy's background, with his story, with the things yeah. that surround his life. This is the guy, man. I mean, that's just not enough. And, it, and I get not. it. You know, you don't, want to, you don't want to arrest or punish the wrong person. But that's what makes this so just, yeah, because he's right there. Oh, I feel like you just need just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Right. Like we knew the direction that we were going. I wish this man had a giant, just open barrel of gasoline at that house or just something right? stupid. Just something like, that's it. That's it. Go get him. Bust right. that door down. Throw on the cuffs. 
Throw away the key. Oh, man. Well, that concludes the Black Dahlia case. Uh, like I said, a very classic true crime case. Uh, it's a little bit different than, you know, obviously some of our more cryptid or uh, supernatural or internet-based ones, but a fascinating case nonetheless. Uh, we would love to hear your guys' thoughts on the matter. Uh, did you guys have any preconceived notions on the case going in? How do you feel coming out of this one? Yeah, let us know by leaving reviews either on Apple, uh, iTunes there, or on social media at Red Web Pod, where we tweet and we post out some like photos and other kind of pieces of information about the case to kind of complement the podcast. Uh, or, you know, on roosterteeth.com, where we also upload and have a comments section and we read through that. But Fredo, in closing, I know this one's a little bit more difficult, but how are you feeling on some of these suspects? I on don't. A, on, a, on a one to 10 scale, if you can, if, if you can even try it. Uh, it's t- it's uh, tough. You might not be able to. Dude, I, I really can't. I'm so, it's like so frustrating because the second suspect, I really felt like, you know, we were really there. It was frustrating. And then mm-hmm. it just got even worse with the 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 third, the two suspects. Or- right. And you just can't tell. You know, that last fact is all I needed to hear to shake up everything. Yeah, exactly. Is there uh, dirty oh, money? Is there like, he knows, they know, she knows kind of I, like people that... Uh, I felt like I had my mind made up and, and we had enough and then... I don't know, man. It's mm-hmm. just so many, so many sketchy people. Listen, this guy's the imposter. I'm throwing him out. You know what? Just didn't throw him out. They're bad people this guy's in general. Out. This guy's out. We, human race. Let's. He's voted out. Yeah, just, he's not in anymore. This guy's done. He's done enough. I don't care. He's out. I don't care if we didn't see him venting. He was near the vent. Okay, let's just. <laughs> well, I mean, even looking at this guy's story, he's got factual crap. And it, okay, okay, I'm gonna go hard on this guy if I don't stop. But anyway, <laughs> that concludes another mystery here on Red Web. We'll see you guys next Monday for another intrigue. See you then. Bye bye.